All right. How's everyone doing today? All right. My name is Brandon Hubler, uh, as you saw in the video. Um, so a little bit about, about me, I guess. I have been involved in this church, I guess, for probably about 10 years. Um, I started going to youth here when the church was out of the, the building in the flea market. So it's, it's been quite some time. Um, if you guys don't recognize me from Sunday, it's because I, I wasn't exactly the most um, studious. I wasn't really in attendance all that much on Sunday mornings. But I was here on Wednesdays a whole lot. Um, so it's just an awesome privilege to be able to get up here and to speak to people who have seen me grow up. Because if, I guess if you knew me back when I was here on Wednesday nights when I was in high school, uh, I was probably not the one you would expect up here today. Um, I was kind of the troublemaker of the group. Uh, Miss Bates had to put up with me a lot. For those of you who know Miss Francis, um, she always keeps her cell phone on. And I would make sure that, uh, and she keeps it on loud, so I made sure that every time she was up speaking to the youth, I called her um, in the middle of her sermon. Um, so I was, I was a troublemaker back then, and it's just a, a wonderful blessing to be able to get up here and to speak in front of everybody today, and it's just a, a big testament to, um, to God and the things that he can do. Um, so Pastor Stephen called me, and he he asked me to speak, and immediately I was like, awesome. You know, this would be a great opportunity. And I started thinking, like, okay, what do I want to speak about? And then he immediately informs me that we're in the middle of a series of the, the wonderful summer of Disney. And I was like, oh, wow, that'll, that'll be a challenge. That's definitely something new for me. I get up and I speak um, at the church that, that I'm a part of every once in a while, but I kind of just get, like, free reign, you know, like, whatever you want to talk about. So I do that. But this, I had a, I had a topic, and, uh, and that was cool, something that was assigned to me, something, that, uh, a task that I had to, you know, tackle and accomplish. So, so that was really cool, and uh, I can't wait to kind of see how, how it works out today. Um, so I'm going to open this up in a word of prayer real quick, if you guys don't mind. Lord, I just come to you today. I pray that as I'm up here, Lord, that you help me move out of the way, Lord, and you just speak through me. Like, like the song we were listening to, Lord, even as I'm up here, show me the art of losing myself and bringing you praise, Father. Just, just let whatever flows out of me be your words. Uh, just give me strength and courage to, to preach your truth, Father. And we thank you for that in your name. Amen. All right. So the movie that I had today is The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And it's definitely an interesting one for a Disney movie. It is easily the Disney movie that talks about God and has that in it the most. That is the number one. It probably has more talk about God than all the other Disney movies combined. It is definitely that movie. But it's also one of the darker Disney movies. Um, if you've seen it, raise your hand if you've seen the movie. All right, cool. So, so most of you have seen it. It's, it's definitely, right? It's definitely one of the darker Disney movies. It's got like a really like deep, deep message in it. Um, the Hunchback of Notre Dame was actually not an original Disney creation. It was an adaptation of a novel written by a guy named Victor Hugo. And it's really interesting that the point of the novel that he was trying to make is mainly that the church is supposed to be a safe place. It's supposed to be a sanctuary and a refuge for people to come. But sometimes it can be the opposite. Sometimes there are tendencies where the church or the people who are involved, who, who claim 
Christ's likeness can push people away. Um, when this movie came out, it made $325 million, I think, the year that it came out in 1996, and it was the fifth highest uh, grossing movie of that year. So that was pretty cool. Um, so as we, as we look at this first clip, what we're going to see is one of the main characters. It starts you out. Uh, his name is Frollo. He is the judge of Paris. He's, you know, the guy who calls the shots. He controls the soldiers, the army. He's the one who anything and everything that goes on goes through him. He's the guy. Um, and you see him. And, that, and when this clip starts, what happens is there are some gypsies who are trying to, like, smuggle themselves into the city. They're trying to sneak into the city. Um, and as this happens, they're caught by the soldiers. And many of them are put in handcuffs and they're taken away. But there's one woman who has a child and she runs. She tries to escape and Frollo sees her run. He chases her down and she ends up on the steps of the church of Notre Dame. And after this chase scene, Frollo, he goes and tries to get her and she falls and she dies right there on the steps of the church. And that is where our first clip is going to pick up at. Demon, I'm sending it back to hell where it belongs. See there, the innocent blood you have spilled on the steps of Notre Dame. I am guiltless. She ran, I pursued. Now you would add this child's blood to your guilt on the steps of Notre Dame. My conscience is clear. You can lie to yourself and your minions. You can claim that you haven't a qualm. But you never can run from nor hide what you've done from the eyes. The very eyes of Notre Dame. And for one time in his life, a power and control. Rolo felt a twinge of fear for his immortal soul. What must I do? Care for the child and raise it as your own. What? I am to be saddled with this misshapen. Very well. But let him live with you in your church. Live here? Where? Anywhere. Just so he's kept locked away where no one else can see. The bell tower, perhaps. And who knows, our Lord works in mysterious ways. Even this foul creature may yet prove one day to be of use to me. And Frollo gave the child a cruel name, a name that means half-formed, Quasimodo. Now, here is a riddle to guess if you can sing the bells of Notre Dame. Who is the monster and who is the man? Sing the bells, 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 that's how this movie begins. And what we see is how Frollo acts towards these people. He considers himself 
to be a righteous man. He considers himself to be a follower of God, right? He says, our Lord works in mysterious ways. He considers himself to be righteous. But his idea of how to get rid of sin, his idea of how to, how to get rid of the sin in his town is to get rid of the people. That's his strategy. He believes that the gypsies are the ones who are coming and they're bringing sin into his town. They're con artists, they're thieves, they're miscreants, whatever you want to call them. And he thinks, if I can just get rid of them, then I can get rid of this sin. And you see what happens as he pursues Quasi's mom. She dies, and, and look, he's, as the clip starts, he's about to, to kill Quasi as well. And that the priest convinces him, you know, he gets that one moment in his life where he feels convicted, and he says, okay. But even in that moment, look at how selfish his reasons are. What does he say, right? Maybe this child will be of some use to me one day. That's what he says. That's what he says. And, then he, and then he names him that cruel name. And then he sentences him to be locked inside of the bell tower for his life. But that's, that's his idea. That is how he handles things. So on our outline, the first one, first one is reality check. Every one of us likes to be the judge. Now we see Frollo. Frollo takes it to the extreme. And I think one of the big reasons why he takes it to the extreme is because he actually has the power to act on his convictions, right? He has the power to actually carry out the things that he feels. But he, he takes it to that extreme. But you don't just start there, right? At some point in Frollo's life, this is a progression, right? He's going to start becoming more and more and more like the man he is when we see him in that first clip. Now, this is something that Jesus points out to us. It is something, it's a reality, there's, there's a part of us in our human nature that wants to be the judge. There's a part of us that wants to say, okay, look at how good I'm doing and look at this person, look at what they're doing. We, we play that comparison game, right? I'm doing better than them. Or look, look at that person, they're a sinner. Now, now Jesus, he acknowledges that this is, is a reality that this is something that is going to happen, but he, he preaches to us about it, and he gives us the, the ability for us to recognize it and then to overcome it. As Christians, that's what we're called to do. Now, if this is something, I, I pray that as you hear this, if this is something that kind of touches you, if it's something that perhaps you are struggling with today, I want you to view yourself the same way that God views anybody else, is that if there's something in your life that's holding you back, right? If there's, if there's a sin, like we prayed earlier, if there's, there's a sin or something that's holding you back, perhaps it is self-righteousness, that we acknowledge it, we know that God loves us, and we take steps to move in the right direction. So uh, let's open up the Word of God, and let's go to Matthew 7, verse 1 through 5. You know, and this is actually really awesome for me because I actually just got done in my Bible study uh, that I, I do at my house, preaching about uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and Matthew 7 is the end of that. I just finished this lesson 
like a couple days ago, um, which is awesome because Pastor and me were talking about what verses could he use. And he came up, he was like, what about Matthew 7? And I was like, absolutely. Yeah, that one's familiar. That's fresh on my mind. That sounds, that sounds wonderful. We'll do that. Um, so if we go there, it says, uh, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So, as I grew up and I heard this verse, I feel like I kind of read it how I think Frollo would read it, right? That, okay, at the end where it says, you know, if you can remove the plank in your eye, perhaps then you'll be able to help the, you know, your brother with the speck in his. I read that as, if I just become a better Christian, right? Like a better Christian, whatever that possibly means. If I just do that, then I'll be able to help my, to help my brother, to help my sister to, re- to remove what is in their eye. But that's not the case. That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying it's about you becoming better. It's about how you view other people. It's this concept of, of condemnation. And, and by the nature of that word, when you condemn somebody, you are excluding them. You're putting up a wall between you and them. You're saying that they are irredeemable, that they're an outcast, that, that you are doing something right and they are doing something wrong. You put up a barrier. So in this verse, it says a speck of sawdust is what is in your brother's eye. And then it refers to this plank that is in yours. And now what he's talking about is actually like a plank for the people who used to build ships in that day, right? Have you ever seen um, perhaps like a comedy skit or anything where like somebody is carrying that like a long piece of wood and somebody like calls their name and they swing it around and like hit people? Have you ever seen that? And, and they do that, right? They swing it around and they hit people because they can't see the other people. They can't see the other people. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make. The reason that we can't help our fellow brothers and sisters is because we can't see them like God sees them. And until we learn how to gaze upon other people and see them the way that Christ saw them and see them the way that God constantly views them, we will not be able to help them. So as we continue through our story, we see people who are like the contrast of Frollo. You see a man is Captain Phoebus. He is a soldier who just got back from war. And he's assigned to be Frollo's right-hand man. So Frollo gives the orders to him. He gives the orders to his soldiers. But as Phoebus walks into town, he's kind-hearted. He sees the gypsies, and he, he tries to help them. He sees the soldiers and how they're rude to them and they're mean to them. So he graciously helps them, he gives them money, he helps protect them. And then we see a gypsy woman, and her name is Esmeralda. And she also has a very kind-hearted, loving nature, and she's just very sweet and generous. But she's a gypsy, right? Frollo doesn't, he doesn't 
think that that could be a reality. How can this gypsy woman be kind-hearted and sweet? That does not cross his mind. As the story progresses, we see Quasi, and he's, he's up in the bell tower. And this is actually about where that first clip, when you first came in, the very first one they showed, that's, that's where we're at in the story right now, is there's this festival that is about to go on, the Festival of Fools. And Quasi, it's his favorite time of the year. He loves watching it, but he has to watch it up from the bell tower. And all the people of the town, they gather together, and they have this huge festival, and they eat, and they drink, and then at the end, they crown the king of fools, and it's supposed to be the ugliest person in Paris. What an honor, right? The ugliest person in Paris. That is, that's what, that's what your reward is. But Quasi, he just, he loves watching the festival. He loves watching the people interact, and he can just see it all from his bell tower, but he wants to be a part of it. And Frollo knows this, and Quasi, he's like, can I just go? Every year, can I just go? And Frollo picks up that again this year, Quasi wants to go. And as they have lunch one day, Frollo, absolutely not, Quasi. You cannot go to this festival. You are a monster. You are repulsive. They will not accept you. They're going to see you, and they're going to hate you. They're going to condemn you. They're not going to love you, Quasi. You can't go down there. And even after hearing all of that, somehow, some way, Quasi musters up the strength to go down there. He throws on his hood so that the people won't be able to see his face, and he goes and he joins the crowd. But he kind of gets caught up in this like giant conga line kind of deal, like in all the commotion and all the dancing and all the singing and everything that's going on. He gets caught up in this conga line, and, and Esmeralda, she grabs him and she pulls him up on stage where they're judging the people for the king of fools. Now, when she pulls him up here, she doesn't know that that's how he actually looks. All the people, they're wearing these masks. And she thinks, oh, well, he's just wearing a mask. He's dressed up for the festivities. So she pulls him up on stage, and as they go down the line, and they're removing the masks of these people, they get to Quasi, and they realize that it's not a mask. It's how he looks. And immediately, they say, oh, that's him that's the boy from the bell tower. That's got to be him. And immediately, they, you win, hands down. You're the winner. You are the ugliest person in Paris. And they crown him king of fools. And for like two seconds, it's okay. Like they put him up on this chair, and it's like a pedestal kind of deal. And yeah, 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 quasi. But then one of the soldiers, he takes an apple, and he throws it at him. And he hits him. And all of a sudden, the crowd, they turn violent, and they start throwing things at him, and they throw a rope on him, and they tie him down, and they start mocking him and ridiculing him. And as this is happening, Captain Phoebus looks at Frollo, and he says, please, let me stop this. This is wrong. And Frollo says, no, there's a lesson that needs to be learned here. And Phoebus, he's in a position where he, you know, if he disobeys, he loses his job, but Esmeralda, she realizes what she has done, and she did not intend to actually pull Quasi on stage if she had only known. So she goes, and, and she jumps up there, and as he's tied down, she takes a knife, and she cuts the rope, and she lets him go, and she kind of gives this speech against Frollo in front of everybody, basically, who is the real monster here? 
And because she says these things, Frollo has his soldiers give chase to her, arrest her. And they chase her, and there's a big chase scene, and she ends up in the church. Now, in this time period, if you were in a church, you could say sanctuary. And what this meant is that the church is separate. The political state could not come inside and arrest you if you cried sanctuary. You couldn't be arrested. So she gets sanctuary. But Frollo says, well, she's going to have to come out at some point in time. So he bars up all the, or he gets all the soldiers to watch all the doors and the exits. And that's where our next clip comes in. She's stuck in the church. Well, what about yourself? Well, no one out there is going to help, that's for sure. Well, perhaps there's someone in here who can.
a song. That's an accurate representation of the message of Christ. God help the outcast. And you see the compare and the contrast, the people who are in the church playing for, praying for wealth and for fame. And then there's Esmeralda who's there. She just says, pray for my people. Because aren't we all children of God? Now, believe it or not, there have been people like Frollo for a long, long time. And in Jesus' time period, they were referred to as the Pharisees. They were actually the religious teachers of the day. Uh, best way I can think to put it, they were the pastors. And they had this concept that they, as religious people, were better than other people. And at that time period, what they did, they shunned other people. They shunned the poor, people who were sinners or tax collectors, right? If you've read the stories, you know they, they wanted nothing to do with those people. No, those are sinners. They're not like us. They're not religious like we are. They're outcasts. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and immediately the first thing that he does is go around and start preaching that the kingdom of heaven is open to all is open to everybody. And who, who are the people who he first goes to? He goes to the poor. He goes to the sick. He goes to the lame. He goes to these people, to the outcasts. He goes to the sinners. That is the first thing he does. He goes and he starts preaching his word. And man, the difference that it makes in these people's lives. It is no wonder that these people wanted to come and hear Jesus speak. They wanted to know what he had to say. Because here were people who, who a couple of days ago were told their whole lives that they weren't good enough for religion. They weren't good enough for God. The beginning of Luke 15 says that notorious tax collectors and sinners often came to hear Jesus speak. This is one of my just favorite parts of scripture because that does not say they were, they were drugged there by a friend or anything like that. That says they often came to hear him speak. Now why is that? It's because these people were told by the religious leaders of the day, hey, you're a sinner, you don't have a chance at this God thing. Because of who you are, you don't have a shot. You're a sinner. God frowns on sin. You're excluded. Sorry. And then here's Jesus who comes and says the kingdom is open to everybody. And, and he eats with the poor. And he eats with the tax collector and the sinner. Now in that time period, your meal, who you ate with, actually like mattered. It held a significance that it doesn't exactly hold today. If you ate with somebody, you were saying, I am on this person's level. I'm on the same level as this person. That's why the Pharisees were so blown away. Dude, you're supposed to be a rabbi. You're supposed to be a religious leader, and you're eating with, with sinners? You can't do that. You're saying that you, you're like them, that you can't do that. But Jesus says, no, 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 the kingdom of heaven is open to anybody and to everybody, all are God's children. All are welcome. All can eat with me. 
So it's no wonder. Like people like Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector, the short guy who climbs up the tree because he's just so curious to see Jesus and to hear what Jesus had to say. Because moments ago, before Jesus started coming and speaking, he thought he was hopeless. And now here is somebody who is coming and saying, the kingdom of heaven is open to everybody. Everyone can have hope. That's such a huge deal. And these people who thought that they were lost, irredeemable, shunned by the church, now can come and eat with Jesus. And man, what happens? Jesus passes him in a tree and he's like, your house, let's go. And he goes and he sits down and after one meal with Jesus, Zacchaeus returns more money than he stole from all the people back to them. And he starts giving all of his money away. He, he had one dinner with the guy. One dinner. And his whole life is transformed and it's changed because a man without hope, a man who thought that the only thing he can do in this life was watch out for number one, now realizes that there is a God who loves him and that he is cared for. Man. And then Jesus goes and he does the unthinkable, right? Right? He voluntarily gets up on the cross for us. This is the greatest switcheroo of all time. It says that in that moment, Jesus took on my sin. He took on your sin. He took on the sin of the person next to you. And for that moment, he looked like us. Oh, God is holy and God is righteous and he cannot look at sin. So in that moment, he turned away and Jesus alone died on that cross. But he did so, so that now when you say, I believe in Jesus and you trust and put your faith in Christ, that God doesn't, he sees Jesus when he looks at you. Jesus looked like you so that way you can look like him in the eyes of God. Number two on your thing is Jesus separated the person from the sin. He separated the two. You are not what you've done. You are not the mistakes you have made. You are even not the mistakes you are making right this moment. And that's one of our biggest flaws uh, as Christians sometimes is we categorize people. That person is a whatever, whatever their sin is, right? But nobody wants to be thought of like that. I don't want to be thought of as my past sin. Oh, that's Brandon. He's, he's a liar. He's a thief. He's lustful. Look at him. No, that's, that's not how God sees me. That's not how I have to see myself. That's the beauty of Christ. He separates the person from the sin. So the plank that's in our eye, right, Matthew 7, that big board, the reason that we can't see to help our fellow person is because we can't see them like Christ does. And this is our example of how Christ sees people. He separates the person from the sin. Everybody is a loving creation that God made, and he loves each and every one of you. To, to see this in action in Scripture, go to John Chapter 8, it says, Jesus sat down to teach them. 
The teachers of law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, all who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Now go and leave your life of sin. They come and they bring this woman They bring her in front of everybody. Look at her. She's an adulterer. Look at what she's done. This is who she is. Now, Jesus, what do we do with her? And he says, okay, you who are sinless, cast the first stone. And I guess they had a heart check, and they said, well, that's not me. I don't have that qualification. I'm not sinless, so I can't cast that stone. I guess the older ones, they've, they've been around the block a couple more times, so they probably like, okay, they probably get it before the young bucks, right, the ones who are all ready to go. But one by one, they start to leave until only Jesus is left with this woman. What does he say? He says, where are they? Where are the people who condemn you? And she said, they're not here. He says, and I don't condemn you either. Now go and leave your life of sin. You see how Jesus does that? Now, he gives her that grace, right? He says, I don't see you like that. But he also has that gentleness to help fix her. Go and leave your life of sin, daughter, because you don't have to live like that. Because you are loved by God. And that is, that's the Christ-like example that is set for us. To show them grace and gentle guidance. As we pick back up on our story of the movie, Esmeralda, she goes to Quasi. She apologizes to him. Please, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Can you help me? And he, he gets her and he helps her escape. He climbs her down the side of the tower and he helps her escape. And Frollo finds out that she's gone and he's furious. And he goes on this mad just witch hunt and he starts going to people's houses and he starts finding gypsies anywhere that he can and arresting them and then offers them money. He says, I will give you 10 pieces of silver, 20 pieces of silver, whatever it takes if you just tell me where she's at. But nobody gives her up. So he keeps going and he keeps just tearing apart houses, trying to find her until he comes to to a farmhouse and he he opens up the door and he, he says, we found a gypsy medallion on your property. Are you harboring any gypsies? And the man says, our house is always open to the weary traveler. We have not done anything wrong. You will find me innocent. And Frollo says, you better hope I find you innocent. And he walks out. He takes a spear and he, he barricades their door. And then he orders Captain Phoebus to burn their house down with them inside of it to set an example to the people. 
And at this point, Phoebus has had enough. He cannot take it anymore. He says no. And he takes the torch and he puts it in, in water and he says, I can't do this. And Frollo calls him a coward and he grabs the torch and he sets fire to the house. And Phoebus jumps through the window, grabs the kids, kicks down the door, and escapes with the family. He saves them. But then Frollo demands that Phoebus be killed. You've disobeyed me. Now your head's on the chopping block. He manages to escape. But not before he gets pierced by an arrow. And he falls into the river, and Frollo thinks that he's dead. But Esmeralda, she's, she's in disguise, and she's hiding, and she sees the whole thing happen. And her and another gypsy find him on the shore, and they grab him, and they take him to the bell tower. And she shows up, and she says, Quasi, I know that you've done so much for me already, but I need one more favor from you. Can we hide him here? Can we patch him up here? And Quasi says, yes, of course, of course. And they come, and they patch him up. But then Frollo comes. So they quickly hide Quasi takes uh, Phoebus and he like, kind of like kicks him under a table to try and hide him. And Frollo sits down because Frollo realizes, he's like, there's no way she could have gotten out of the bell tower unless Quasi helped her. So Frollo has this idea. See, his whole career, he's been searching for something called the Court of Miracles. It's like this hidden safe haven for gypsies and he can't find it. And he says, that must be where Esmeralda is at. That's where she's hiding. So he thinks, well, Quasi will be able to lead me there. So he goes and he has dinner. And he plants this lie, this seed in Quasi's mind. He says, I found the court of miracles. And tomorrow morning, me and my army, we're going to lay siege to it. And he leaves. So Quasi and Captain Phoebus, they hear this. They're like, we have to find it first. We have to find it and let them know and warn them. So they go and they, they find the court of miracles, but Frollo follows them there. And when he does this, he arrests everybody. He finds Esmeralda and he puts her up on a stake to be burned. And that's about where our next clip comes in. The time has come, Gypsy. You stand upon the brink of the abyss. Yet even now, it is not too late. I can save you from the flames of this world and the next. Choose me or the fire. The Gypsy Esmeralda has refused to recant. This evil witch has put the soul of every citizen in Paris Come on, Quasi, snap out of it. Your friends are down there. It's all my fault. You gotta break these chains. I can't. I tried. What difference would it make? But you can't let Frollo win. He already has. So you're giving up? That's it? These chains aren't what's holding you back, Quasimodo. Leave me alone. Okay. Okay, Quasi. We'll leave you alone. After all, we're only made out of stone. We just thought maybe you were made of something stronger. 
where she belongs. Quasi saves the day. He does it though. He's he's bound in those chains, right? What does the Bible say, right? That, that Christ can help us break the chains that hold us. And this this is it. This is the message that Christ has left with us. Where does he find that strength to break those chains that hold him? It's because of the love that is shown to him by two people, two people who actually want to take the time and become his friend, two people who actually want to see him as a human being, as a person, and they take the time to love him and care for him. And in this example of Christ-like love, Quasi finds the strength to take those chains and to break them and to swing down and to help the people who are in need. Now, church, this is our part now. This is what it means to be followers of Christ, to be the church of Christ. We, the church, are called to be agents of reconciliation. We flip open our Bible to 2 Corinthians 5, 18. It says, God reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God reconciled us. He brought us home. He made us his children. It was by his works, and he reconciled us to himself. And then he says, you now have the ministry of reconciliation. To see this point even further, if you go to 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6, it says, The God of this age, or Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let the light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face 
of Jesus Christ. Look at what this verse says. It says that people have been blinded. They don't have the ability to see the gospel, to see God for what it really is. They have been blinded. And in the verse in verse 4, it says, it says the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And in verse 6, it says the knowledge of God who is displayed in the face of Christ. And he's saying God can be seen in Christ Christ can be seen in God. You can see their character. You can, you can understand God. You can know who your heavenly father truly is. But how? How is that light supposed to shine? And that's verse 5. It's right in the middle of those two. Verse 5 says, For we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus Christ as our Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake church, we are the agents of reconciliation. We are the ones who are entrusted with the message of Christ. It is our job. We have been called to go to the outcast, to the sinner, to the downtrodden, to the hurt, and to show them the love of Christ and to bring them to that love. Church, that is, that is what we are called to do to look upon every single person with love and kindness and care and show them who Christ really is. Show them that they are loved by their Father. Christians, if the core of what we believe, if our gospel could be reduced down to the very center, what is it? It is Jesus Christ, God, stepping into human history, being nailed to a tree that he breathed into existence by people who he created. And up there, he died. He gave up his life. He gave up his life. And while he did it, he did it loving the people who were putting him there. He did it praying for his enemies. He did it forgiving his enemies core of the gospel is God humbling himself, God becoming weak, stepping into history, and dying, forgiving his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If that is the picture of what we are supposed to be like, church, if being a Christian means to be like Christ, church, is that how we're living? Is that the message that we send to other people? Because church, that is our responsibility. That is our job. It is our duty to show people the love of God. Jesus did not come to make bad people good people. He came to make dead people live. That is the power of Christ that lives in each and every one of the people who call him Savior who call him master, who call him Lord. That's what we are called to do, church. There's one last blank here at the bottom of, of your outline. And I pray that God just put somebody on your heart right now. But my challenge to you, church, is to think of somebody who, really, who's the last person you would think of? 
Who's the person who you would look at and think that person is never going to be godly? They're a sinner. That person's an outcast. Maybe it's the annoying person at your work you can't stand to be around. Maybe, maybe it's the homeless person who you see at McDonald's in the morning. Maybe it's just anybody. Who is it on your heart who's the least likely to be here and who needs this the most? I pray that you write down that name in that blank. And then as you go through your week, invite them to church. Become their friend. Talk to them about Christ. Invite them here. Quasimodo, he holds her up and he yells, sanctuary, sanctuary, right? Because she's safe, because she's at the church. But the Bible does not define a church as a building. It defines a church as me. It defines a church as you. We, the body of Christ, we are to be his hands. We are to be his feet. They are to have sanctuary with us. We are to be a refuge for them. We are to be a safe place for people to come to. So church, thank you so much for having me here, for letting me speak. It's been such an honor and a blessing. Thank you. Um, I'm going to pray us out real quick.